Okay, Acts chapter 2 today is uh, where we're going to be. And I, I just, and Revelation chapter 2 as well. We're jumping back into the book of Acts. Last year we started a series going through the whole book of Acts. There's 28 chapters. Today I think is our 43rd week as a church going through the book of Acts. As we've been on a little bit of a break, I wanted to give you a quick recap of the last 43 weeks, okay? And then we're going to push the ball forward a little bit. And I'm going to, I'm going to endeavor to, to do this quickly for you this morning. But the book of Acts begins where the Gospels leave off. The four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. His ascension into heaven is mentioned in Luke. And then the, the book of Acts is the next step. It is the continuation of the story of Jesus as Jesus now does his work, not through his physical body as one person on the earth, but as he does his work through his spiritual body, which is made up of the believers, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not done working in the world today. Amen. Amen. Jesus is still working through his church today in the world. And so Jesus ascends into heaven and he made a promise that when he did so, that as he went up into heaven, that he would send his spirit, the Holy Spirit, down and that his spirit would indwell, would live inside of his church, his people, his believers, and that we would be empowered to go forth and to proclaim the gospel, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And that through the power of his spirit, though we would face opposition, though there would be tests and there would be trials and there would be persecution, that the spirit would enable us to be effective in our witness, would cause the gospel to flourish and would cause us to remain faithful to the Lord even under the attacks of the enemy. And so we saw that play out. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Peter stood up, who had been someone who denied Christ, who had been a coward. He now stands in front of the very same crowds that had crucified Jesus in the very same city, and he boldly proclaims to them that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Savior of the world, Jesus is the one who paid the price for sin, Jesus is the one who calls us to repent of our sin and to trust in him for eternal life. And upon proclaiming the gospel with boldness and in the power of the Spirit, this man who once was a coward, now transformed, is used by God to birth the church into existence. And on that day, three thousand souls were added to the church. The day of Pentecost is the birthday of the church. It is the, the day where, where for thousands of years the plan of God came and finally was birthed into fruition. And what happened very quickly after that was that the, the darkness came to try to overcome the light. That persecution arose and, and persecution tried to snuff out what God was doing but what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. And as persecution arose, the people were scattered. God's people went out. But they did not go out silently. They went out preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And as they went out under the power of the Spirit, even though it was persecution, why they had to leave, little revivals started breaking out all over the place. More people were saved. More people were healed. More people were transformed. More cities were changed by the gospel of Jesus. 
There was one young man who had an intense desire to, to snuff out the church, and his name was the apostle, his name was Saul of Tarsus. And God got a hold of this young man. He was traveling from town to town, arresting believers, persecuting believers, taking them back to Jerusalem, throwing them into jail, putting them on trial, and ultimately seeing these believers martyred. God appeared to him. God saved him. God called him to be an apostle and radically transformed him from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul that we know of today. Immediately, this man began preaching and proclaiming the gospel. He went out on three missionary journeys. We followed his pathway as he did that, planting churches all around Asia Minor, all around uh, the, the region of Galatia, even on into Greece, planting churches, seeing thousands of souls come to Christ. In the midst of all of that, there was persecution. In the midst of all of that, there was opposition. Paul was beaten. Paul was lied against. Paul was slandered. Paul was opposed publicly. Paul was stoned. Paul was thrown into prison. Paul was left for dead. But in all of that, God proved faithful and the gospel moved forward. Now, that brings us to where we are. God has put it in Paul's heart to go to Jerusalem. God has told Paul that he must go to Jerusalem. And Paul knows that this is God's plan. And we saw this in Acts 21. Paul said this. He said, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, bound by the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit had told him, You must go to Jerusalem. Paul knows this is the plan of God. He says also, I don't know what will happen to me when I get there, except... That the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul knows two things for sure. Number one, he knows the plan of God is that he go to Jerusalem. Paul knows also that the plan of God is that when he goes to Jerusalem, he will face persecution and imprisonment. But Paul's attitude in verse 24 is this. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so Paul says, I know I'm going to face persecution when I get there, but I know God has told me to go there, and so I'm not going to cower in fear, but I'm going to go in faith, and I'm going to trust in God and in God's plan. And that leads us to where we are in Acts chapter 21 today. And we're going to see what happens when Paul goes to Jerusalem. Now, some of this, I will admit, is a little bit foreign to us as it describes um, some things that pertain to Judaism and people who are Gentiles. And for those of us who are Gentiles, which I'm looking around here today, I think is everybody who is here. Gentile means non-Jew. Um, we, some of this will seem foreign to us. We won't necessarily understand exactly, even though we may understand it, it won't be as meaningful as, as it would be to a, a Jewish person. However, I'll, I'll, I'll stop and, and try to explain things as best I can along the way. So it says, uh, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now this is a, a miracle. This is a work of God's grace for, for these brothers who had been persecuted by Paul. Remember, this is Jerusalem. This is where Paul was persecuting believers. 
Paul had even overseen the execution, the martyrdom of, of Stephen, one of the leaders in the church. But Paul has changed. He's not the same man that he was before Christ. He's a new man. He's a new creation. And so now these brothers welcome him in to the, to the, to the church. They receive him gladly. It says, on the following day, Paul went with us to James. That's James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was, one of the, he was the lead pastor or the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem. He says, we met with James and all the elders were present there. And after greeting them, Paul told them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul recounts for them the, the years of traveling and, and church planting and the miraculous things that God had done. And it says, when they heard it, they glorified God. They celebrated with Paul. They celebrated what God was doing through his ministry. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are, who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come here. So the, the leaders there say, Paul, it's so great to see you. You are a brother in Christ. You are a Jew. We love you. We celebrate the work that God is doing. But there's a problem. You've come back to Jerusalem. There are thousands of Jews who are Christians. They have believed in Jesus as the Messiah. But they've heard rumors about you that you are teaching the Jewish people in these communities where you've gone and preached the gospel that they should forsake their customs, that they should forsake um, the law of Moses. And, and what you need to understand is that the law of Moses was not just about salvation. The law of Moses was about how God's people were to live uh, separate from the world as the nation of Israel. And it had all kinds of customs, dietary customs, um, customs about holidays. Again, circumcision was an important one. And the lie that had been spoken about Paul was that he was teaching Jewish people to forsake all of those things. And that's not true. That's not what Paul taught. What Paul taught was that we are not saved by those things. That those works of the law do not save us. That we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ and the grace of God expressed through the cross. That is how we're saved. But Paul was not teaching Jews that they had to forsake their customs, their traditions. But that is the rumor that had been spread. You see, Paul had taught Jews that they were perfectly free to continue in their traditions. That, that many of those traditions themselves pointed to Christ as the Messiah. And, and as they didn't put their faith in their traditions to save them, but as they put their faith in Christ to save them, they were free to continue in their customs and in their traditions as long as their faith was in Jesus. But this lie had gone out 
that Paul was teaching Jews to forsake their customs and traditions. And now Paul has come to Jerusalem and they say, what are we going to do about this? How can we show them that this is not true, that this is a lie? And so they come up with this plan for Paul to partake in a Jewish custom with some uh, Jews that are in that church. And they say, look, th this will be a way that you can show all of these people that these things are not true and that this is a division from Satan coming in trying to thwart the plan of God. And so Paul agrees. And I'm not going to read through all of the, the tradition and the, the thing that they go through. But I, I do want to show you what happened while Paul was trying to fulfill this. We're going to skip down to verse 27. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So remember, from Asia, the, the region of Ephesus, that Jews had traveled from there and, and they had opposed Paul there. They had... They had persecuted Paul there. They had tried to destroy the church there. When they now see Paul there in Jerusalem in the temple, they get a crowd together and, and they lay their hands upon him. They, they stir up the whole city and they cry out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now Luke tells us that Paul didn't do that. Luke says that they had previously seen, previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, but he didn't. Nevertheless, they're spreading this rumor and this lie that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple, which Paul did not do. Nevertheless, this gets the crowd going, the mob going. And it says, all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And they were seeking to kill him. So, so just imagine what this is like, okay? The, the whole city thrown into a riot. The whole city in an uproar, an angry mob Okay, we don't have to work that hard to imagine what that's like. Over just the last few days, we've seen an angry mob. We've seen people, just a whole you know, chaos, a whole city thrown into chaos. Over the last few years, we've seen uh, riots and, and what mob violence looks like, except all of their attention and focus is placed on this one man, Paul, and they are trying to kill him. That is what they're, they, he is the, the focus, he is the attention of all of their violence, of all of their hatred, of all of their anger. It says they were seeking to kill him. And it says that word then spread to the tribune of the cohort that Jerusalem was in confusion. This was the, the Roman government leader that was there in Jerusalem. And so he at once takes soldiers and centurions and runs down to them. He dispatches the National Guard, if you will, to go in and to stop this riot. And so they show up. And it says, when the Jews saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So, so Paul is in the midst of this riot. They are beating him. They are kicking him. They are, they are striking him. They are stoning him. They are, they are executing him. 
mob violence. They are ripping him up. And the, this, this Roman group of soldiers comes in and surrounds Paul and pushes them back and, 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 and tries to bring uh, some peace to this confusion, tries to bring some order to this chaos. And says, when the soldiers show up, they stop beating Paul and the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. What is it that stirred up this crowd? Some in the crowd are shouting one thing and some in the crowd are shouting another and he couldn't figure out what was going on of the uproar. And so he ordered that Paul be bought into the barracks, that he's put in the dungeon, that Paul is arrested. And he came to the steps and he was actually being carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. They were trying to rip him apart. They were so violent. For the mob of the people were following him, crying out away with him. And Paul stands up in the next section. It tells us that he, he wanted to preach the gospel to them. He saw this as an opportunity to address the crowd and he does that. And next week into chapter 22, we're going to see the address that Paul gives to the crowd. We're going to stop here uh, for today. Now, what are we to make of all of this? What are we to make of all of this? Paul being constrained by the Spirit, being told by God he must go to Jerusalem. Also being told by God that when he gets there, they're not going to roll out the welcome wagon. They're not going to roll out the red carpet. They're not going to blow up the balloons. But instead, they're going to attack him. They're going to persecute him. And he's going to be thrown into prison. What are we to make of all this? We actually know as we read the rest of the book of Acts, that for the rest of the book of Acts, all the way through chapter 28, Paul is a prisoner. Paul is a prisoner. We never again read about Paul being a free man in the Bible. For the next five years, Years, Paul is a prisoner, a prisoner of Rome. Now, church history, and from tradition, church history tells us that after five years, Paul was released, after he stood trial and made a defense of himself, that he was released for a period of two years, that he traveled to Spain, preached the gospel there, was eventually arrested again, put on trial. And the second trial, that he was condemned to death and that he died a martyr's death. That's church history and tradition. It's not the word of God. It's not on the same level as the word of God. But we have good reason to believe that that, that is what happened. But for the next five years, Paul is a prisoner. Eventually, Paul is martyred. Now, what I have to tell you today is that this was not a failure on God's part. God did not fail Paul. God's plan for Paul did not fail. In fact, this is actually God's good and perfect plan. The Holy Spirit had already told Paul that this is what was going to happen to him. Paul's arrest, Paul's persecution, Paul's suffering, they weren't outside of God's plan. They were God's plan. Paul being arrested and persecuted was the plan of God. Now, how do we know this? Well, the Word of God tells us this. If we go back to Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus was converted, when he saw the light and Jesus spoke to him, at the same time, God also spoke to another Christian, a man named Ananias. Paul had been blinded by the light of Jesus, and he 
God spoke to a believer, a brother named Ananias and said, Ananias, I want you to go lay your hands on Saul. I want you to pray for him that he would be healed. Saul and uh, uh, the Lord Jesus and Ananias have a, an argument. The Lord Jesus wins the argument as he always does and Ananias goes. But listen to what the Lord told Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. Jesus said, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The suffering of Paul is, out, is not outside of the plan of God. The suffering of Paul is the plan of God. And God had shown Paul ahead of time that he would endure this pain and this hardship and this suffering. Now Ephesians chapter 1 declares to us that God is sovereign. And that God is, as sovereign, is working all things in accordance with his will. Now, what does all things include? All things includes all things. God as sovereign rules and reigns over all things, over every event, over every circumstance, over every trial, over every test, over every persecution, over every hardship. God is working all things in accordance with his will. And that for us as Christians is a good thing because God is good and his will is good. Now, I know that when I say that, many of you will struggle with that. You will struggle with this idea that God's good plan might include things like pain. That God's good plan, even not only for Paul's life, but for our own life could also include hardship, difficulty, tests, trials, persecution, and that God's good plan for our life could even include us being martyred for our faith. When I say that to you, I know that you will struggle with that. And there are two reasons why you will struggle with that statement, with that idea. The first reason that we struggle with this idea, even though we see it now being laid out clearly in Scripture, the first reason we struggle is because of our flesh. Our flesh. In our flesh, what do we want? Do we want things to be hard? I don't want things to be hard. I want things to be easy. I want everything to go my way. I want when I get on 410 for the, the cars to part like the Red Sea for Moses. <laughs> I, I want everything in my life to be easy. That's what I want in my flesh. I want to sit on the throne of my life like I'm the king of the world and everyone just does what I want all the time and to live a life of ease, to live a life of comfort, to live a life of luxury, that's what I want in my flesh. I don't want anything to be hard. I don't want there to ever be a trial. I don't want there to ever be a difficulty. I don't want there ever to be pain in my life. 
That's my flesh. That's my carnal nature. And the Bible says that the flesh is at war with our spirit and the Holy Spirit, which is drawing us not into a life of ease and comfort and luxury, but is calling us into a life of holiness, calling us into a life of sacrifice, calling us into a life of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, calling us into a life of carrying our cross daily. That's what the Spirit calls us into. So the first reason we will struggle with the idea that God's plan for our lives could include pain, suffering, hardship, and even death as a martyr for him is first and foremost our flesh. We don't want to experience those things. The second reason is a more dark reason. It is more diabolical. And it is because that there are many false teachers in the world who will tell you the opposite is true. There is no shortage of so-called Christian pastors and teachers who will tell you that God's plan for your life is that you would never experience pain, that you would never experience hardship, that you would only live a life of abundant blessing and they define abundant blessing as physical health, material possessions, and wealth. And they say God's will and purpose for your life is that you would be wealthy and that you would be healthy. That's God's plan. God's God's purpose. And the, the reason that you will struggle with me saying that God's plan and purpose might include pain and suffering is because the majority of so-called Christian teaching in Western culture in America today is teaching this false theology and this false doctrine. It is not true. It is a lie from the enemy. It, is, it, is, it, it has its origins in the pit of hell itself. It is demonic doctrine. It is from hell. It goes by many names the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, word of faith theology. It's gone by name it and claim it and even blab it and grab it. And it teaches that we as humans have the power to create our world by our words and that we can speak into existence the world that we want and so if you want wealth, you just claim wealth. You just speak wealth. You just say wealth. And that you will attract through the power of your words. And you will create your world through your words. That is a lie from hell. Because only God's word has the power. Only God is the one who can call things that are not as though they are. We are not God. You are not God. You are human flesh. You do not have the power to create your world through your words. Only God does. But there is no shortage of false teachers teaching this false doctrine. Now, these false teachers, they don't only teach false doctrine. They come disguised as an angel of light. And so they will teach many things that are true, but the ultimate end is that they treat God like a genie who is there to just grant you any wish that you want. 
And the problem with this false teaching is that they do not, they do not encourage you to desire the things of the Spirit. So it's not that seek God for holiness, seek God for righteousness, seek God for sanctification, seek God for the power of the Spirit. No, they say seek God for wealth. Seek God for money. Seek God for mammon. Seek God for physical possessions. These are the things, the desires of the, the, the fallen, sinful, carnal man. The, the fallen, sinful, carnal man wants wealth and health and possessions and finds their identity in those things. Not the children of God. But these people come and they promise and they attract, and you say, well, why is it so popular? If it's not true, why is it so popular? If it's not true, why is it pumped out on Christian airwaves? And why is it sold in Christian bookstores? If it's not true, why is it so popular? Let me tell you why. Because people want to be rich. Because people want to be wealthy. Because people want to know how to accumulate these things. And so it is not hard to accumulate a following of unconverted People, unregenerate, lost souls, and, and repackage, uh, uh, repackage uh, uh, new age philosophies as Christian, using Christian uh, phraseology. It's not hard to sell that to unconverted people because unconverted people want to be wealthy and want to be rich. So the reason it is so popular is because people want to hear that message, not because it is right and because it is true. And if you've listened to any popular Christian teaching, most likely on TBN or anything else, they are teaching this gospel that you can earn God's favor by your good works. But it is another gospel. It is a false gospel. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 that false gospels are accursed, they're anathema, as well as those who teach them. This teaching is a cancer in the church, and it teaches people not to love God and not to seek God, but to love things and to pursue God for, the, for, for material possessions, and so that God is not the ultimate end, but the stuff that we can get from God is the ultimate end. That is idolatry, that is paganism, and it is from Satan. Now, the truth is that most Christians today, most believers today, do not know how to handle hard times because they have a bad and faulty worldview and they've embraced this false doctrine and they do not have good theology. And so most Christians today, when they face hard times, they find themselves in a crisis of faith. Many of them turn their back on God and they go through a very dark time and valley because they have not been prepared by faithful pastors who teach the word of God. Nine years ago, almost nine years ago, my father passed away. Suddenly, he was a 58-year-old man. He was in apparently good health. One day to the next, God took him home like that. He was pastoring this church. He was preparing to preach a Sunday morning sermon when God brought him home. It was the worst day of my life. It was chaotic. It was traumatic. It was horrible. Um, watching young ladies in the church try and resuscitate my dead dad 
the office of his floor, the pastor of the church. Horrible, dark day. Prior to that, I had embraced some of this false doctrine. And because of that, I could not understand how in the world a good God would allow this thing to happen. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't process it. I was going through at that time a crisis of faith because I knew that God is above all things. I knew that God was sovereign. I knew that God was ultimately in control. And I knew that if God wanted to, he could have raised my dad from the dead as we surrounded him and laid hands on him and prayed for him and did everything we knew how to do and that the word teaches. And yet, God did not act. I struggled. I went through a dark period, a crisis of faith. Not a... Not a, not a crisis of faith in, in God, but a crisis of what I had been taught because it did not work. And so I remember I sat down with a, a minister that I knew for a long time. I really respected this individual. I am a broken young man. I am struggling. I'm trying to process this. How could God allow this to happen? Because I knew that God had allowed it to happen. But it seemed to me to be out of character with what I had believed and known about God. And so I sat down with this person and I said, I don't understand. Why didn't God heal my dad? Why didn't God raise him up? His word says this and, and it seems like God didn't come through. And this person sat across the table from me who was indoctrinated in prosperity gospel, word of faith theology. He looked me in the eyes, a broken young man, and he said this, if you had enough faith, your dad would still be alive today. If your elders were men of true faith, your dad would still be alive today. If your dad would have had enough faith, your dad would still be alive today. I went away from that meeting not more healed and whole, and I went away even more broken. And I, I, I just simply said, the, the grace of God covered me and carried me during that time. And because of God's grace, God pulled me into his word. God drew me to his word. God gave me a new love for his word. And I said, I must find out what the truth about this is. And I know that so many people, having gone through things like that in their life, they end up turning away from God. But because of God's grace, his unmerited favor, of which I do not deserve, for reasons that are only in him and him himself, instead of allowing me to harden my heart and turn away from him, he drew me closer to himself in my brokenness. And so he drew me into his word. And so the question is not, what, do the, what, do, what does everybody else say about all of this? The question is, what does God's word say about all of this? What does God's word say? That's all that matters in the end. And so I've prepared for you a, a small sampling today. A small sampling of God's word. From three of the most prominent authorities in the word of God. First is the Apostle Paul. What does he say about the Christian life and suffering? Well, Acts 4.12, he says this, that Paul strengthened the souls of the disciples. 
And he encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now again, I, as, I, as I read these verses and declare this truth to you, consider, if you will, over and against, place it, if you will, over against what is promoted and what is blasted across the airwaves and what is called so-called Christian teaching and ask yourself why you never hear this taught on Christian television. Why you never hear this taught in Christian radio, hardly at all. If, if this is the word of God, which it is, and if this is true, which it is, why is this not taught and preached? Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 1.8 So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 2 Timothy 2, 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, so that none of you would be shaken by these trials, for we know that we are destined for this. This is a small sampling of the teaching of Paul. What does Peter have to say? Another prominent uh, New Testament apostle. What does he have to say? 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, though for now a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, don't be surprised when you go through trials. Don't be surprised when you go through tests. Don't be surprised when you endure suffering. Don't be surprised when you endure hardship. Don't be surprised about these things. It's not strange. God's plan for us is that we would endure these things. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered for a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, secure you, strengthen you, and establish you. Listen, there is an eternal glory. There is a reason, there is a, a purpose, there is a, a plan in all of the hardship and the pain and the suffering. It is not meaningless. It is not without purpose. Peter says, don't be surprised when you face these fiery trials. What does the Lord Jesus have to say? John 15, 12, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The false teachers teach that you can have peace in the world, that through the accumulation of wealth and prosperity of physical possessions, that you can have peace in the world. Jesus says, in the world you will not have peace, but you will have peace in me. In the world we will have tribulation as we have been called out from the world. We're not part of the world, yet we still live in the world that is broken. But we take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Matthew 24, 13, Jesus says that he who endures to the end will be saved. Why does Jesus say we must endure? You don't tell someone they have to endure luxury. You don't tell someone they have to endure a life of ease and comfort. What does enduring mean? It means pressing on when things are hard, when things are difficult, when there is a global, worldwide pandemic. Endure. Press on. Don't give up. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Jesus and Peter and Paul. Don't be surprised when you face fiery trials. We are destined for this. Revelation chapter 2. If you flip over there with me. In Revelation, which is the end of the Bible, it is the culmination of all things, the consummation of the the husband and the bride of Christ and his church. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has seven messages for seven different churches. And in verse 8, listen to what the Lord Jesus says to the church of Smyrna. He says, the words of the first and the last, that's the Alpha and the Omega, that's Jesus, who died and came to life, who rose again. Listen to what he tells this church. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Think about that for a second. The Lord Jesus sees this church in Smyrna. He he sees that they are enduring persecution. He sees that they are poor. That means they don't have a life of luxury. They don't have a life of ease. They don't have a a two-car garage. They don't have the American dream. They are in poverty. But Jesus declares, though they are poor in the world, they are rich in the things of God. Listen, there is a riches that belongs to the people of God And it is not measured by dollars. It is not measured by cents. It is not measured by physical possessions. It is not measured by a 401k and a retirement plan. There are riches of God that are ours in Christ. And we have to get our eyes off of the material things of this world which are fleeting, which are passing away, which will be burned up when Christ returns. And we must place our eyes on the eternal riches that we have in Christ. Jesus says, 
Though you are poor in the world, you are rich in me. He says, I see your tribulation. I see your poverty. I see the slander that you are enduring from those who say they are Jews, but they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus, the one who defeated death, the one who sits on the throne, the one who rules and reigns over all things, tells this church, do not be afraid of the trial that is about to come upon you. Do not be afraid of the test, of the suffering, but endure be faithful. Don't throw in the towel. If you remain faithful, even unto death, you will receive the crown of life. That's what conquering means. It doesn't mean that you live a life of ease and luxury. It means that you have remained faithful to the Lord in the face of every challenge, in the face of every obstacle, in the face of every test, in the face of every trial, in the face of suffering, persecution, and even death, you remain faithful to the Lord. That is what it means to conquer and overcome the enemy. Jesus says, endure, don't give in, don't throw in the towel. Paul's arrest, Paul's persecution, Paul's suffering were not outside of God's plan. They were God's plan. And this is good news because God is good and his plan is always perfect. And this plan is always a plan of redemption. And God is producing within his church a purity and a holiness. The Bible says that God is not coming back for a church that is full of sin and iniquity. He's not coming back for a church that is a bride that is spotted with sin. He's coming back for a pure bride, a bride that is dressed in white, a bride that is holy, that has saved herself for her husband and has not committed adultery with the world and fornicated with the world and been led away by the lusts of their wicked hearts into the world. And so it should not surprise us that God would purify us, that he would purify his church, that he would allow the heat of fiery trials to come upon his church, to, to, uh, to prune his church, to remove from our lives sin, iniquity, and impurities. God allows the trials to purify us, to make us ready to stand before him on that day 
that we would be holy and that we would be righteous and that we would be welcomed in as his bride. God is committed to his bride. He is committed to his people. He will not leave us or forsake us. He is with us in the midst of the fire. We see the three Hebrew boys that were thrown into the fire. God was with them in the midst of the fire, but they were in the fire. They went through the test, but they came out purified. And we too, as God's people, we will go through the fire, but we will not be burned. He will take us through it. He will not forsake us. God is not committed to your happiness, but he is committed to your holiness. And he will do whatever it takes to get you ready to stand before him on that day, holy, sanctified, created again in his image, the image of Christ himself. That is good news. That is glorious news. Because it means that there is a purpose for the pain. It means that whatever we must endure, we count it all joy. Because the testing of our faith is perfecting us. Producing patience and steadfastness and endurance. And when steadfastness is complete, we are perfected in the image of God. And so we say as God's people... Whatever we must endure, we will endure for the sake of Christ because we have forsaken the world, we have forsaken the things of the world, we have forsaken the lust of the flesh, and he is our prize, he is our joy, he is our love, he is our savior, he is our king, he is our master, he is what we want more than anything else and anyone else. We do not serve him for stuff. We do not pursue him for what he can give us. We pursue him for him alone because we love him because he has saved us. Amen. The world's culture, the, the doctrine of our world is that there is no God, there is no creator. Because of that, the world believes that there's no purpose to life. Everything is meaningless. It's all just random events. What a dark and depressing thought. That all of the pain that you've ever experienced in your life, that there's no purpose to it, that there's no plan for it, that there's no redemption through it or coming from it. What a horrible, depressing, and dark thought. What, a dis what, what dis utter despair that people without Christ live in. Prosperity gospel teaches that any pain and suffering you experience is because you have failed God. You didn't do the right stuff. You, you didn't uh, do the, the things that would make God be happy with you to give you the stuff that you want. And so you have failed God. What a horrible and dark and depressing thought. What a horrible thing. That's called karma. That's not Christianity. It is a false gospel. Christianity teaches that, that the... the, 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 the uh, uh, Punishment for our sin has been laid on Christ. That what we endure in this life is not punishment for sin, but that it's, it's God's discipline in our life as a loving father corrects his children, preparing us to meet him as his kids. The truth is that there will be difficulties in life, there will be hardship, there will be pain, and there will be suffering in this world 
But God is above it all. God rules over it all. And God's promise to his people is that he will work all things for your good. Every pain, every hardship, every defeat, every loss, every bit of brokenness, the plan of God, his redemptive power is that he will take it and he will work it for your good. This is the promise of God to the people of God. Philippians 1.12, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul writing in prison as a prisoner, been in prison for five years, he writes back to the Philippian church. He says, guys, guess what? This wasn't outside of God's plan. This was God's plan. Though Satan meant it for evil, God has meant this for good and the gospel has been advanced. It has not been inhibited at all by my imprisonment. Instead, God has used it for his glory and to accomplish his good and perfect plan. Now, would Paul say he wanted to be in prison? No, probably not. But he could recognize in the suffering the good plan of God because he saw through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of faith, and the scripture declares to us that the just must live by faith. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal glory that is far beyond all comparison. Listen, what we go through in this life, it is light and it is momentary compared to the weight of the glory that is beyond all comprehension, not that is delivered to us in this world, but is awaiting us in the kingdom of God for all eternity. Paul says it's like a scale. On one side of the scale is all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the afflictions, all of the hardships, all of the backstabbing, the lies, the deceit, the sin against you, all of that on one side of the scale but then here comes the glory for us and it slams it down. It cannot even be compared to what God has prepared for us. Can't even be comprehended. You can't even imagine it. And God's people, this is what we live for. This is what we live for. This is why we get up. This is why we read the word. This is why we spread the gospel. This is why we love our neighbor. This is why we sacrifice. This is why we serve. This is why we endure, why we press on, why we don't turn back, why we, why we carry our cross, why we press on is because there is a reward for those who seek him. There is a glory prepared for us. So what do we do? We endure, we press on, we stay faithful, we fight, we stand, we double down. Not so that God will fill our bank account, but because God is what we're after. He's the one we're pursuing. God is not a means to an end. God is the end. He is the Omega. Last night, Heather and I were sitting around the kitchen table and 
we were just, I was just updating her on everyone I'd been in touch with that day and just so many people in the church and just remembering everybody in prayer and, and talking through the, the burdens that everyone's um, enduring right now. And we're just talking through that. And Heather, she had this profound statement. She said this. She said, you know, God did not promise that life would be easy. But God did promise that he would always be with us. That is the truth. God's promise is not that life will be easy. But his promise is that he will always be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. That in the midst of the furnace, in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the trial, he is there. He is carrying us. He is lifting us up on eagle's wings. He is holding us in the palm of his hand. And no one can snatch us out of it. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his presence. He gives us his power the same power that he used on the cross to remain faithful to the purpose of God. He gives us that power as we carry our own cross for him. It's his power that carries us. And in the midst of, a, midst of the trial, he gives us his peace. His peace. There's so many in the world who have everything, but they have no peace. We have nothing, but we have his peace in our hearts. He gives us his joy, not a joy that is based on external temporary things, but a joy that is eternal based on the truth of the gospel. He floods our soul with his love. He gives us his word, which is a comfort to our souls and, and orients our minds and helps us to, to think about things and, and to know things from a, a true perspective. He gives us his church with elders and, and pastors to care for us and to watch for our souls and to give us community, brothers and sisters, to come alongside us that we would carry each other's burdens and not be alone as we endure this life. The Bible declares to us that God is good, that God is sovereign. And that there is a purpose in the pain, but there is hope in the resurrection. As we look at Christ on the cross, it shows us so clearly that pain is not purposeless, that suffering is not meaningless, that just as God used the suffering of Christ to produce salvation for the world, so he will use the sufferings we experience in this life to produce for us an eternal weight of glory. That is our hope. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. It is true. Though sometimes it is a difficult pill to swallow, it is good medicine for our souls. Thank you that you show us you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, you didn't promise that life would be easy, but you promised you would be with us, that you would carry us, that we could cast all of our cares and our burdens upon you because you care for us. 
Lord, you've called us to endure. You've called us to press on. We do not know what the future holds. It may be, it is uncertain to us, but it is certain to you. And ultimately, our future is not uncertain, but we look forward, we look past the, 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 the momentary, we look past the temporary, and we look to that eternal glory, that hope that we have, that glorious day when you will return and you will resurrect the dead, and you will lift us up to be with you for all eternity. God, that is what we're living for. That is our hope. We do not put our hope in this life. We place our hope in you in the life to come. Just as you endured the cross for the joy that was set before you, so likewise we endure whatever it is that we must endure for the joy that is set before us all eternity in your presence forever, where you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where you will judge the world of sin, where you will finally and fully eradicate all sickness and all disease, and that we will worship you and we will live with you for all eternity with all of God's people forever and ever and ever. That is your promise to us. And your promise is that you will remain faithful to us to get us to that place. Lord, help us through the power of your spirit that we might remain faithful to you to press on and to endure. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap today.